Business as Unusual is a thought-provoking podcast that explores the innovative strategies, disruptive ideas, and unconventional practices driving successful leaders and companies in the ever-evolving world of modern business. Subscribe, comment, and share for weekly inspiration with our host, Aisela. Hi, it's Aisla, and I'm here with the third episode of the second season of Business is Unusual, and I'm very excited to introduce you all to Dylan Brody. Hello, Dylan. Hello, Aisla. Congratulations on your second season. Thank you. So I'll start with asking you, what's the last artist that you got lost in? Oh, what a great question. The last artist that I really got lost in, I think, was John Darnielle. Well, the Mountain Goats. One of my favorite things about John Darnielle is that even when he is performing alone, he goes on stage and says, hi, we are the Mountain Goats. Oh, that's not true as the most recent one. The most recent one is more embarrassing. More so embarrassing. We'll, we'll get to that in a moment. Opus Moreski, a head writer for Colbert, before he got the gig on what was then the Colbert Report, he and I worked together at a company called Playground as a freelance writers uh, building out a project for them. And he had the Mountain Goats album Tallahassee on CD uh, or on a, 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 an iPod. And every day, apparently at that time, he basically had one album that he just kept playing. And every day or two, I go, okay, who is this that we're listening to now? And it was always John Darnielle and the Mountain Goats. And it was always the same album. And I went and bought that album. Maybe he gave me that album as a gift. And then I did an entire retrospective through the discography and then kept up with the new stuff as it came out. And the man is simply a genius. So John Darnielle really drew me in, uh, but that was a while ago now. Most recently, Taylor Swift. Um, I, 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 I found her 10-minute version of All Too Well on Saturday Night Live mm -hmm. and was stunned by this young woman in a cat suit on national television saying, this happened, my voice matters, witness me. Mm -hmm. And was deeply impressed with the, the, the lyric work in that song, as well as the performative work, the performance work. Performative has taken on an odd meaning in the modern mm -hmm. world. But her performance work and, and lyricism were stunning. And then I began to explore all of her work and found out about the extraordinary things she did reclaiming her music from the corporate ownership and just have become a massive fan. In fact, in a piece that I've just written, there's a role that I very much want her to play. I, as I'm writing, I tend to cast in my head and... I uh, I want her to play Nimue, the Lady of the Lake, in my my Merlin story, who who you know comes out of the water with the sword, knowing that she is revealing all the misogyny and all the the difficulties with this legend as she's doing it, and who then goes on to do some uh, almost nightclub performance to a, a group of of. Uh, difficult militaristic men <laughs> um it's uh it's a really funny role and as i was writing the book i wasn't casting but then when i started to turn it into a limited series i um i thought oh she should do this uh, so i guess the answer to your question is taylor swift 
Well, both of those stories are great. Thank you. Very quickly, uh, I haven't. I, I did this on stage once. I did a, a show about racism recently, and uh, I told this story. It's not really scripted yet. It's not something I've developed. But I, I pulled into a gas station a few months ago, and uh, there, there were two black men filling their car on the opposite side of the tank of the 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 uh, the pump. I got out of the, the car. And I said, guys, I don't mean to be weird, but I just discovered a, an odd piece of sort of uh, residual racism in me. And I want to express it and tell you what happened. And we're like, oh, all right, what you got? And I said, uh, I realized as I pulled up that because I saw you guys over there, I turned down Taylor Swift. And they started to laugh. And one of the guys did the, the hiding his mouth behind his hand. I'm laughing, but I don't want you to know I'm laughing moment. And he sort of gave the other guy a nod that was more permission than uh, anything else. And the other guy said, yeah, we, we saw you. We turned down Demi Lovato. <laughs> <laughs> it made my day. I bet. That's beautiful. Thank you. Yeah, I, uh, you're quite welcome. So you're... You have many, obviously, uh, hats that you wear, and I, I have very few hats. Okay, I it's have hard. a top. I have a top hat. Okay, that I almost never wear. Okay, and I used to have a fedora, but I don't know where it is now. But you don't have a squid hat. I don't even know what a squid hat is. It's a hat that looks like a squid hanging off your head. Then yes, I do not. My hat game is like high high level, but oh, good. To know. <laughs> But in life, in the, yes. the different works that you do, uh, Active Voice Productions, tell us more about that. I created Active Voice. I created Active Voice Productions so that I would no longer feel at the whim of corporate America. I am. I. I have difficulties in my relationship with money, mm -hmm. and I have difficulty in my relationship with the corporate world with with capitalism in general i i have philosophical objections to the system of exchange that is the basis of our society so for most of my adult life i had real difficulty earning any kind of a living mm -hmm. And with that came all kinds of shame and embarrassment and humiliation, not to mention frequent poverty. Mm -hmm. Now, my wife is a teacher, so there's always some income coming in. But as you may or may not know, teachers in America are not paid enough to support a family. Or to really pay for their time to do their job. So that's correct. <laughs> that's, it's, not, that's correct. It it's a little bit of a volunteer position. It's a vastly underpaid position because, and we don't say this at all, because of misogyny, mm -hmm. because it's historically been a, a female position, a, a female uh, role. And uh, it's just, it's a, the way teachers are treated is ugly and worthy of a whole separate podcast. In any case, this meant that I was forever scrambling to pull together enough money to do my part as a productive member of a family. Because I feel as though if I'm doing my work, then I'm doing my part as a productive member of society. Mm -hmm. And in my mind, then I shouldn't have to worry about money. But that's not how it works. Now, 
once I created the company and began having the power to hire people, mostly freelance, a couple of times I've been able to hire people full-time for a time, but the company's consistency is not such that I'm able to really build yet as a, you know, I don't have, I don't have offices other than this one in my home. I don't have, you know, it's a small company right now. But once I realized that I could start to hire people, then my relationship to money changed. Because now I wasn't feeling as though every act I took was out of greed. I could create a company whose designated purpose is, much as my life has been, the designated purpose is to create, produce, and support museum-quality art to reach an entertainment industry mainstream audience. Because I believe that art has value and have said for years that entertainment is the word people use when they don't want to take responsibility for what they say through their art. Mm. And it, I'm going to just go into this larger philosophy about art for a moment, uh, if I may. And if I may not, I'm doing it anyway, and you can cut it later. The arts begin with drawing on cave walls and the telling of stories, probably around a cave before fire. And the work was pictures of what we kill and how we kill it. <laughs> and the stories were tales of how we did better this week than we did last week. And they were instructive. They were informative. They were a way of moving the culture forward. I tell the story of how one guy was smart enough and brave enough to hide in the box canyon before the herd was chased down and was able to easily kill enough for the entire tribe. Oh, what a beautiful story. And now we have a hunting technique that can be passed from generation to generation. Right? Now, when we look at ancient story, among the things that keep being said, whether it is the spiritual stories of the Bible and the Torah and the Quran, or the folk tales of, of Europe that have passed down or of Africa that have barely passed down and have begun to be uh, part of the American zeitgeist, thanks in no small part to Neil Gaiman, and so on. The, these, the, 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 there is a, tra a historical tradition of legends that tell us the rules of survival, of group existence, of society. Among those, let me point out, are the proper use of magic mirrors. The reflection can lead to narcissistic self-destruction. That is the story of Narcissus. That is ultimately the, the original story of the wicked stepmother uh, queen who wants to know who is the most beautiful. It is the origin of all the magic mirror stories. The danger of self-involved narcissism. It's a warning. And we invented the magic mirror that lets us see from our homes people in faraway places doing faraway things now that lets us communicate back and forth, right, as we are now via the interwebs. 
These are the basic magic mirrors. And for the first, oh, 60 years that we've had them, we have used them to observe only the most beautiful, refined, purged of flaw versions of ourselves and allowed ourselves to become hypnotized by the magic mirror that shows us only our greatest beauty and our most imaginary perfection. So we wind up with televisions all over the world broadcasting perpetual uh, pro-police propaganda, what is now called copaganda. It has a word because you can't fight something until you know its name or give it a name. Mm -hmm. uh, we have the, the constant misinformation about what is actually funny and what is not because we we fill every quiet gap with canned laughter when we're going for laughs. We create deceptions that are comforting, but are dangerous in the way that all lies are dangerous. Now, I believe, guided by my conscience, the only voice I can truly trust, in terms of ethics and morality, that the truth has value that is greater th than anybody's personal comfort. I'm going to say that again. The truth has greater value than anybody's personal comfort. And we, as a society, as a culture, as a civilization, have grown accustomed to the idea that comfort must be protected even at the expense of truth. And that's a dangerous place to be. Because when we build structures on false foundations, they cannot uh, survive. When I created Active Voice Productions, let me. I believe that art can be as entertaining as the popular entertainments. And if we create popular entertainments that take themselves as seriously, and that does not mean humorlessly, I take comedy very, very seriously. Most comedians do. <laughs> No, many no? of them don't. We could discuss that as well in a moment. Okay. That's one of my, my deep pet peeves for a long time. But if we take the work seriously as art and entertainment, then we as artists have the opportunity to genuinely use the arts for their original purpose, reaching the vast audience that the entertainment industry has made available to say that which is important, that which matters, that which is true. That's the purpose of active voice productions. And I recognize that I work a lot in fiction because fiction is a way of getting at the truth. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, it's one of the, the bits of nuance that fascists have great difficulty digesting, processing. Mm -hmm. That there's a difference between a fiction designed to reveal truth 
and a lie designed to protect someone's comfort or position or power. That that's really ultimately the purpose of active voice productions is subversive. Well, let's let me go back to this uh, comedy thing that came up a moment ago that I said we would come back to. For 15 years, I was a straight-ahead stand-up comic. I uh, got in at the improv when I was 17. I would take the train down from Sarah Lawrence College two or three times a week, do as many sets in the city as I could, uh, including whatever my spot was at the improv. And then over the summers and on vacations, I would be out every night working out uh, at the clubs. And then eventually I became, you know, I went through the steps and became a headliner of it. Along the way, I alienated a shit ton of people. But there were many comics with whom I had this recurring argument. It was, a, it was a recurring argument in the way you have recurring dreams, where you keep coming back into it and going, wait, I've been here before. How can this still be the, because jokes, I believe, are the most powerful form of linguistic magic they are the most powerful form of linguistic art well let me say that again the what i think of as the magic of a joke is that i can put together two sentences and make an entire room full of people think a thing that i did not say mm -hmm. it's a kind of uh telepathy Right. I know that if I put these pieces in place first, their minds are going to go in a particular direction. And then I offer this close and it shifts. Now, the Druids used the, the satire spelled with a Y to undermine the powerful. Uh, uh, a satire, a brief rhyming spell spoken aloud in public, rendered a disliked leader incapable of retaining respect, power, and authority. It's the origin of the limerick. There once was a ruler from Kent whose sexual relations were bent. He loved all his sheep and would not let them sleep. And. To him, you're all going to pay rent, right? That's, that's a basic limerick. I wasn't bad off the top of my head. Um, uh, but it changed the way people looked at something, and it could not be undone. Mm -hmm. The combination of the rhyme and the humor makes it memorable. Powerful, powerful stuff. And when I found comics who were doing what I thought to be reprehensible material, I would confront them on it because I was arrogant and really thought it was my job, not just to do my act, but to make sure that everyone understood our craft the way I understood it and gave it the respect that I gave it. And I was just, you know, I was a, I was a prick. And I, God knows how many opportunities I ruined for myself with this behavior, right? The seriousness with which I took comedy right from the beginning, I didn't, I didn't go at it as something, well, I wanted fame and fortune, certainly, but I didn't go at it as a route to a sitcom or uh, as uh, an artistic craft that I could pursue to make headliner money for the rest of my life. 
I pursued it as a way of changing the world, of saying the things that I didn't know how to say for that people would not listen to unless I wrapped them in jokes. I refer in a poem and in a story to my grandfather's ability to put horror under laughing glass. Mm -hmm. And when I was a child, the people I saw really changing the world, really saying things I had never heard before were the comics, Richard Pryor, George Carlin. Mm -hmm. So I went into it almost, it was later that I really began to think this consciously, but right from the beginning at some level, I saw it as my responsibility. I just want to change the world. Thank you. That's beautiful. No, thank you. I'm trying. I can't So I get that's actually a great segue. If uh, if you're successful with active voice productions or in this larger sense with your work. And I am. Then what's going to be different? Like when you are, when you are really like arrived at whatever that means for you. What's 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 going to be different? Um, Active Voice is already successful in remarkable ways. We've produced several short films that have won that have won a lot of awards. Now our first feature is out and winning awards, and we're getting the next feature ready to go out. And I think it may be beautiful. So we are already putting into the world the kind of work I hope to put into the world. We are already using what profits we make to hire artists and creatives and to support the work of those uh, we feel supportive toward. God, I hate that sentence. Toward toward whom we feel supportive. So we're already successful in those ways. Ultimately, I want to be able to speak to increasingly large audiences of people involved in the entertainment industry about the nature of the arts in the entertainment industry and the responsibility of the entertainment industry as an artistic endeavor, as a grand, as a, as a, a whole on of a, of an, of an artistic endeavor. I would like to see money coming in to make ever larger, ever more meaningful, but ever more, uh, I want to say expansive, but that's not the word I'm looking for ever more far-reaching pieces. Hmm. The, the, the two features are micro-budget projects. And I would like to get to do a major motion picture release. I expect that's going to take three or four more minor motion picture releases to happen. So what is the best advice that you've received, given, or both? About what? I mean, that's up to you. Okay. <laughs> I will give you the piece of advice that my master gave. I'm a martial artist. And my master gave me a piece of advice. The fist is not the universe. I was frequently beaten up as a child by other kids, kids older and bigger than I was who did not like me because I had long hair, possibly because I was Jewish. My father said because I was smart and intimidating intellectually and because of my nonviolent relationship with my parents. I don't know what the reasons were. They were children. I was a child. Who knows? Kids can be mean for no reason. (laughs) Whatever their reasons were, this family said, 
47 children, all between second grade and fifth grade. And they would, they would take, sort of take turns uh, harassing and beating me up on the way home. And there was a, a sort of a recurring dream I would have at the time and experience in which I would see the fist and I would get all wobbly. I wouldn't be able to, I would get scared and I would freeze. And I went to my master for his advice. And it took him a while to figure out what I was saying. And then we went out onto, he said, come. We went out onto the mat and we bowed to the flags. We bowed to each other. And uh, he said, we spar. And I said, do you want to gear up? He said, no. Uh, and we began to circle. We began to move, light contact sparring. And then he kicked me pretty hard. And I realized it was not light contact sparring. And then he key up very loudly ah! and raised his fist. And my focus went to his fist. And he said, ha, there. And I said, what? And he said, don't look at the fist, look at me. And I couldn't. He said, don't look at the fist, look to my eyes, look to my eyes. And finally, I adjusted my focus. But it was a conscious effort because I felt it, right? He's punched me before. I know what it feels like. And I, I, I want to be responding in real time. And I want, and he said, the universe is not the fist. The fist is not the universe. If all of your focus is there, it becomes the universe. And you cannot escape the universe. If all of your focus is on the fist, you will encounter the fist. Shift your focus to all the other space around the fist and inhabit that. The small piece of advice is the fist is not the universe. The big piece of advice is allow your focus to be broader than the immediate sense of threat. Thank you. No, That's thank great. You. That's great advice. <laughs> I strive to not suck. Thank <laughs> you. So what do you do to keep yourself inspired when it gets hard to believe in your dream? How do you recharge? The, the real answer is the only time I don't feel inspired and enthusiastic is when I'm not doing it. Mm. As long as I'm doing the work, I am thoroughly involved, thoroughly engaged. I am without, without thought for the world around me when I'm working. Um, you know, in my workshops, I, I do workshops for writers. I do a weekly Saturday morning workshop for writers in general. I do a Thursday evening that currently is designed for uh, people who are working first person singular, but it hasn't been filling up. So I don't know what that Thursdays is going to become. And on Tuesdays, I do a humor workshop, uh, largely political humor for a, a podcast called Politipod. Uh, they pay me a base fee for all of their uh, participants to join in. And then other people separately come and join the group. Uh, and in each of these, much of what I do is just give prompts and get people writing, give anxiety relief exercises, and then get people writing. Because to my mind, the thing that frees us of the pain of life, the pain of human existence, the human experience, for me, the only relief is creativity and learning. As soon as my focus can shift back to myself and my wants and my needs and my 
trauma and my issues, uh, I, I begin to spiral. Mm-hmm. When my focus is outward on who I can help, on, uh, on where I can be kind <laughs> to mm-hmm. people or to the world. And really, my work is about being kind to the world in some ways. I feel as though my conscience has tapped into some ideas about how we can exist with one another w- without violence or rage as our central focus. And mm-hmm. it seems to me that to share that idea is kind of a kind, sort of a kindness to the world. So in answer to your question, I just find my way back into work and into decency for other people. Right. I grew up believing. Genuinely believe it, and until fairly embarrassingly recently, there was a core belief that if you wrote something and you got it right, then anyone who read it would immediately want to buy it. And if the first person who read it didn't, there was something flawed with it, and it should be hidden. Hmm. It shouldn't be shown because that's embarrassing to my parents. It's only, you know, when I realized that the rejections are only information about that place, not Mm -hmm. about the work. And that notes have meaning only in groups of three or more. That I was able to really believe that the compliments mean something. My first published novel, A Tale of a Hero and the Song of Her Sword, available at Amazon.com, 7.99, I believe, for young adults, uh, for, for gifted kids, gifted children. I thought I was writing a novel. I was writing a book for gifted kids because I'm a simpleton. That first one that was, uh, the, the first one is not published. The first one still hasn't been published. I would need to go back and do a rewrite. I finished it when I was 17. I haven't read it since. There's a story about that that set me up for a lot of failure that I may tell you. But when I finished that first book and, and, and made the choice, Puffin offered me $5,000 and a traditional legacy publishing sink or swim contract. That is, they put it on the list, and if it gets bought a lot, they reprint it, and if not, it goes away. And then this small mom-and-pop publisher said, we can't give you an advance. We'll keep it in print for 10 years. And I said, I'm going with you guys. And five years later, I received a pile of letters from children at some school, I think, think in Mississippi, I may be wrong about that. Uh, they had been given four books they could choose from, and everyone in the at the grade level chose one of those four books and read it and wrote a letter to the author. Hmm. And for several years, I received a pile of letters that I answered diligently every year. And then for a few years, I received a pile of emails every year. Responded to and most of them asked the same questions, and they were all adorable. But they were kids who were reading the book. They were kids who had chosen the book, had read it thoroughly enough to have questions, only one of whom in all that time said they didn't like it. Hmm. And children, I felt, and because he said that, I was able to feel that most of the others might be honest. That experience allowed me to understand in a new way the difference between my creation of a book and other people's responses to it it allowed me to understand in a new way the meaning of the compliments and 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 that it means more that it was read that it was absorbed 
than whether they liked it or not. Very briefly, I wrote uh, my first untitled novel when I was in high I was at prep school. In my junior year at prep school, I had done very well on my essay. I took a, 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 my junior year, the SATs on my junior year, because that was what we did. We, you took them your junior year, and then you found out if you needed to strengthen anywhere, and you got a second chance in your senior year. But I did really well on, on, on the first time through. And a friend said, why don't you start submitting to colleges? So I started sending out applications without a senior year. And uh, then I went to a dean and I said, hey, if I, if I get into college, can I get a diploma? And they said, uh, <laughs> no, you have to finish high school. Or you can die. And I said, OK. So I stopped applying. In lieu of one of the essays, I had been sending out my novel. And Sarah Lawrence College got back to me and said, we would like to have you next year. And I said, I would like to come next year, but I will not have a high school diploma. And they said, we don't care. Please finish filling out the application. So I filled out the application. In the meantime, I had sent the book to my parents, whom I respected. Uh, my father was a novelist, had shifted to playwriting, but had two novels published by legacy publishers. My mother uh, had met him uh, at uh, in majoring in English Lit at Columbia, right? These are academic intellectuals who I believe to know everything about art and literature. Mm -hmm. And they got back to me having read the book and my father said, it's there's some good work in there. I wouldn't show it to anyone. It's the kind of thing that could ruin a career. Hmm. Now, I, at that point, I was embarrassed to have sent it to colleges. That was before Sarah Lawrence accepted me. And I found out later, partly because of the book. For years, I wrote two spec scripts every year, a pilot and a, uh, uh, an hour long, or a, uh, I mean, a half hour sitcom and, a, and an hour long. Two spec scripts, one for, for spec scripts uh, in Hollywood are either screenplays for which you're not paid, right? You write them to sell or a script for an extant television show hmm. that shows writers of other television, staffing people on other television shows that you can match voice, tone, and format for a show. No show can look at a spec for their own show. Hmm. So if you want to write on, on Law & Order, you have to write a spec for CSI, right? That makes <laughs> they sense, actually. Because right, then they, they can't claim they took a storyline and yeah, blah, blah, blah. That makes sense. So every year I would write a sitcom in an hour long or a sitcom in a feature on my own dime. And as soon as it was rejected by one place, I would shelve it. Mm -hmm. Nobody should see it because it wasn't good enough, which meant it would ruin my career. Right. In my mid-30s in therapy, it suddenly dawned on me that there is not a single person in the New York publishing industry in 1981, 1980-81, who would look at a 320-page manuscript from a 16-17 with story and dialogue and an arc and a climax and a MacGuffin and say, well, I never want to see anything this person writes again. Right. That doesn't happen. No. Everybody encourages the 1617, mm -hmm. except, you know, my dad. <laughs> I realized this 
And the next time I talked to my dad, I said, do you remember saying this? And he said, oh, yeah, I do. I'm sorry. That was really more about where I was in my writing career and my sense of myself than having anything to do with what was on the page. And I said, okay, that's good to know, but dear. Then several years later, I was in Boston with him and my mom, and she brought up my first novel. Uh, and I said, yeah, I never went back and did a rewrite because dad told me that it would ruin my career if I sent it to anybody. And she said, oh, that was absolutely right. He was absolutely right, Dylan. It was rife with typings. Wow. Now, as a 17-year-old, had I heard that, I could have done another pass or maybe learned from someone that you can hire editors. Yeah. But what I heard at that time was it'll ruin your career to show it to anyone. Because my parents would be embarrassed. If I have to adjust the opinion of my work through a human filter for my parents, then I have to do it for everyone else. If they like the work, if they compliment me, I accept it as truth. If they don't, if they critique it, then it's their problem. Hmm. Then they didn't get it or they weren't smart enough, or it just wasn't for them. And only if several people come back with the same problem, do I even give it a second thought that it might be something wrong at my end. And once I know that something is being missed, that a segment doesn't work, or that everybody thinks this needs to happen, or that four different people didn't understand that nested flashback, or whatever the hell it is, Mm-hmm. And I go back with the intention to clarify, not to fix. Because rewriting, I was going to say always, but I'm not sure that's right. So give me a second. Rewriting is frequently, almost always about clarifying the auteur's intention, not correcting to fit either a reader's desire or an assumed uh, form. It's not about correction, it's about improvement. So folks that are listening and put this out there and they're going to want to like, know, like, how do, how do I take a class or a workshop or oh. see these shows? And like, what, what do they do to like okay. connect uh, with Dylan Brody? You can go to DylanBrody.com where you may find uh, a bunch of video of me, some things I've made. You can find information about how to book me for gigs uh, if there are ever gigs that I'm doing, I, I announce them there. If you want to study with me, that all happens under the Active Voice Productions banner. Activevoiceproductions.com, all one word, gives you three options at this time, education, literary, and production. If you want to take courses with me, if you want to study with me, either as a private coach, which I very much enjoy doing, 
or as a member of a workshop, you click on the education button. If that says something other than education, it will still always be the one on the far left. Uh, if you're interested in reading any of my work or in uh, purchasing screenplay, in producing a screenplay or a play, in publishing, at Active Voice Productions Literary, you can have access to all the works that we own, mostly my own. I think right now available, everything is my own, with the, the minor exception of Greytop and Love, which is mine, but adapted from my uh, play by my father. And then on, in production, you can see all the stuff that we're producing. You can see the Dylan Brody experiments that are winning awards. You can see the Dylan Brody projects, one of which is winning awards. And also, you can find out how to reach out to us if you are hoping to create something, have the money, and don't have a production company, because we are perfectly capable of stepping in, picking up that budget, and uh, giving you the freedom to create the thing you intend to create without needing to worry about that, that structural building. I, you know, Active Voice Productions has relationships with DPs and camera teams, and we have relationships with art departments and so on, so that we are able to put together a team to produce on behalf of those whom we do not find egregiously offensive.